MSW Media. Prevail. C'est une programme pour politique. L'histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organisado, dinero sucio. Global corruption. Ta brotpou za démocratie. Et ahora, ATP. Et maintenant, con ustedes, su anfitrión, I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Will Bunch is here. Will, of course, is the national columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, one of my favorites. Uh, three times a week he writes when he's not writing columns. He's on Twitter. He's on social media fighting the good fight and calling out uh, all the crazy stuff that's happening. I wanted to have him on, especially because of a recent column he wrote about the Red Caesar idea. For those of you unfamiliar with what Red Caesar means, first of all, you're lucky. Second of all, I wrote on my Substack, my Prevail Substack, which uh, you can go subscribe to. I wrote a two-part series about the new right, these neo-reactionaries, kind of the intellectual underpinning of the Republican Party, although they're not really Republicans, they're really reactionaries. And what they want is a dictator. They want a king of America. They want, in the words of one of them, a red Caesar to come and, you know, get rid of the Constitution and just get shit done. And the shit that they want a red Caesar to get done, believe me, is not stuff that you or I want to get done. It's a dangerous thing, obviously antithetical to everything that the United States stands for, government of the people, by the people, for the people. They do not believe in that. They want a king. And they want a King Donald for some reason, even though they pretend to be smart. So Will Bunch, I believe, is the first American newspaper writer to take this seriously and, and, you know, write a column about it and kind of call attention to it, amplify it in his words. And he did this in a recent column. I wanted to have him on and talk about that, uh, which we do um, at length. But we talk about a bunch of stuff. We talk about a great book that he wrote called After the Ivory Tower Falls, which sort of examines higher education through the prism of politics and how the college system by changing over the last 50, 60 years, has really uh, influenced people's political positions and why, therefore, the Republicans are so opposed to funding education and stuff like that. So we talk about that. We talk about journalism and the state of journalism and the media and how the media has failed um, in 2016, how it's failing now, although we both agree that it's doing a little better now than it was certainly eight years ago. And then we talk about all this Red Caesar stuff and what the Republicans are up to. A couple of things that we mention in here. Uh, we do talk about the Tommy Tuberville hold on the military promotions, uh, which, of course, was lifted this week. Since, the, since we recorded this over the weekend, Tuberville has uh, capitulated. And we now have people in these positions who have been confirmed by the Senate, which is a win for Schumer. It's a win for America, it's a win for the military, and it's a loss for Tuberville and whatever fucking hostile foreign power he's working for, wittingly or unwittingly. So, sorry, Tommy, you lose. Um, as a football coach, he's used to losing. 
Lost the Egg Bowl a couple times to Mississippi State. Uh, yeah, I can't believe this guy is in a position of power. It's fucking ridiculous. So we talk about all those things. Also, I ask him at the end about the about football. So we talk football a little bit, and his prediction was way off. So, but that's okay. His, his analysis of the team is good, but his 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 prediction, spoiler alert, did not did not come to pass. Other things going on this week. There was a GOP debate last night. Um, as I'm recording this, it's Thursday morning, 5.30 a.m. Thursday morning. So Wednesday night, there was GOP debate. It was on a news station I've never heard of. Four candidates showed up. Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, Vivek apparently was in rare form, just raring to go, insulting everybody, saying crazy shit. And uh, the, the the whole thing is a farce, really, because Trump is going to be the nominee. And, you know, Will and I talk about this in the interview. It's a cult of personality, as he says. And, and you know, Trump is the guy the whole cult is built around. He's the personality. So the idea that one of these people is going to come in and uh, change that, or alter that, especially fucking DeSantis, who has the personality of a wet bag of leaves, you know, it's just, it's just not going to happen. You know, barring some weird thing. I mean, even if Trump goes to prison, I don't know that he's not going to be the nominee. Or that he's not going to win. Who the hell knows? You know, anything can happen. And we have to take these threats really, really, really seriously. To that end, another thing happened, which is that the Senate voted down an aid package for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, you know, places that need our defense and our money and and our attention. The vote was 51-49. Obviously, all of the fucking Republicans voted against it because they're all, you know, in Putin's corner. Just to be very clear, aiding Ukraine now and giving them military support will help destroy Vladimir Putin. It's really, really simple. We give them aid. That's all they need. They don't need troops and anything else but our money and our weapons. We give them to Ukraine. Ukrainians will take care of business. If we don't, Putin is maybe going to win and then we're all fucked. Because he's then going to invade one of the NATO countries and we are going to wind up with boots on the ground fighting the guy. It's really that simple. That's how the world works. Putin invaded the place. We're trying to help Ukraine, you know, with these occupying forces. And if we don't help them, then Putin's going to win and he's going to basically draw us into a larger battle. So if you want to avoid World War III, the thing to do is to give them some fucking support. Okay? Uh, That's basic. It's basic. Everybody knows this. The Republicans voted against it because, again, the Republican Party is the Russia Party. It's the Putin Party. They're aligned with the Kremlin, whether they believe it or not, whether they're taking money from him or not. I don't care. It doesn't matter. They are operating. They're carrying water for Putin and the Kremlin. That's what they're doing. It's what they've been doing for some time. Now, we control the Senate. The Dems control the Senate. So which senator voted with the Republicans? You want to guess? Of course, the answer is Bernie Sanders. Bernie has been on his best behavior for the most part for most of the Biden term because I think he likes Joe Biden and he likes the fact that Joe Biden makes him feel included. But when he saw the chance to help Russia, breadline Bernie just couldn't help himself. He just had to had to vote for Putin, just had to go with the Kremlin. Maybe one last time for old time's sake, you know, remember this guy. okay? Russia was helping him, too in 2016. He didn't bow out soon enough. He didn't lend his support to Hillary Clinton until it was too late. He's absolutely culpable in Trump getting uh, elected in 2016. And then in 2020, 
he ran in the primaries, despite the fact that he knew that Russia was helping him. Despite his health problems, despite his age, he ran anyway to draw votes away and fuck shit up. So I get 2016, you're running, you don't know any better. Once you know Russia's on your side and trying to install you in the White House, maybe step down. But Bernie can't do that because he's an egomaniac. He's a narcissistic egomaniac. And once again, he's throwing in with Putin. So that's it. I've written a lot about Bernie Sanders. And I can tell you another thing about him. Every time I tweeted about Bernie Sanders... The people came after me. The bots, nasty. You tweet about Trump, it's not like that. It's the Bernie people that were the nastiest people on Twitter. So I don't know what that says about him, but this is supposed to be some pacifist, peace-loving guy. No, not the followers, not the people on Twitter. So Bernie Sanders, once again, helping out Putin. Good for you, Bernie. I hope you're proud of yourself. Hope you're proud of yourself. We're going to remember you if we get into World War III because of the, this lack of aid. One last thing, Taylor Swift, person of the year, Time Magazine's person of the year. I'm not really sure, you know, why they picked her. I, I don't, first of all, I don't give a shit who Time's person of the year is because uh, is Time Magazine even like a thing anymore? That's A. I mean, didn't Hitler and Stalin win this? Weren't they people of the year? Wasn't Osama bin Laden person of the year? Like, it's not like a great honor or anything. It just means you're a person who was the most historically significant in the year. So, you know, this was a pretty big Taylor Swift year. I don't know who else is going to, you know, is in the running. Uh, maybe Zelensky. I don't know. Did he win last year? I don't care. But I think it's funny because all of these men's rights guys on the right uh, are all very, very triggered by this in the same way they were triggered by the Barbie movie. Um, they all come out and, and attack Taylor for her age, for her alleged promiscuity. One of these guys was like, I think this guy Malio was like, she's old and her eggs are run. Why would anyone want to be with her? And it's just like, guys, settle down. She doesn't know that you exist. She will never care that you exist. And uh, that's it. I mean, it says more about these jokers than it says about her. She's still dating Travis Kelsey, by the way, which I think is cool. I ship that because, you know, Taylor's kind of built her brand about being kind of the dorky girl, you know, that uh, made her way. And I think that's why a lot of people identify with her because she's insecure. And, you know, she, the insecurity uh, comes out in the music and people respond to that. They identify with it. They respond to it. And now she's dating the football player. She's dating the football star. That's a great American story. I love it. It's great. I would love it better if Travis Kelsey was playing better. But, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, so Taylor Swift, congratulations. Time person of the year. Uh, you've got our support here at the Prevail podcast. We'll be right back with Will Bunch. Thinking about leaving Congress? Ready to move on from the hassle of constant campaigning? Had enough of Capitol Hill? Whether you're retiring, not seeking re-election, or the first sitting Republican ever expelled from the House, Bribero Executive Placement Services can help you find your next opportunity. At Bribero, we specialize in landing soon-to-be ex-senators and congressmen high-paying jobs after they leave office. If you'd rather run Truth Social than chair the House Intelligence Committee, or host a Fox News show than oversee oversight, or sit on the board of News Corp than be Speaker of the House, even if you'd rather face certain criminal charges by serving as an insurrectionist president's chief of staff than seek re-election, Bribero makes sure you land your dream job. 
So if you're a former Speaker of the House, a former Acting Speaker of the House, or a Senator under indictment for being an Egyptian spy, Bribero will find the cushy sinecure you deserve. Bribero, the pot of gold at the end of the Congressional term. And now, back to the show. Will Bunch, welcome to Prevail. Greg, thanks for having me. I'm honored. No, it's great to have you. Um, you know, I've been reading your columns for a long time now, and you're one of my favorite columnists and writers because you talk about the stuff that other people seem not willing or able to talk about as much. Um, and I want to get to all of these fun things. But before we we go there, uh, you're the national opinion columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer, which I was taught was called Inky. I don't know if that's a yeah. thing. or Yeah, yeah people, people uh, call it that. It's more... It's more one of those things that people outside the paper than inside the paper. But I kind of I kind of wormed my way in. I mean, I was with the Philadelphia Daily News, which had this weird relationship, was owned by the same company and in the same building. But we were competitors for the first like 20 years I worked there. And then the economic inevitability, they merged the two of us together. So uh, I really enjoy writing for the Inquirer, but at times the Inquirer culture is still new or alien to me. You know, it's kind of weird. So how did you get to be a columnist? Like what, t- talk a little bit about just your career path. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I I think early on, you know, I, I grew up in the golden age of columnists, right? You know, uh, Jimmy Breslin, Mike Royko, all those people were in their prime when, when, when I was a kid. And, you know, I always had it in my mind that this was something I wanted to do, which was kind of weird because when I look back on it, because I'm not sure what I thought I wanted to say, but I maybe I maybe it was like the image and the and the lifestyle of the columnist that I liked more. And, uh, you know, like like most people, uh, uh, I went into straight news reporting, worked my way up from a small paper to a medium paper to a big paper and, and uh you know, had one layoff scenario and a marriage scenario. And somehow that all brought me to Philadelphia and uh, and the Philadelphia Daily News. And uh, I was still interested in being a columnist. But I mean, my origin story really, I think it was when I did realize I did have something I wanted to say. And it really started with the Iraq war, you know, uh, or maybe you could say it started with 9-11 and the aftermath and how that went into the Iraq war. Because, um I, I just found it to be a very shocking experience because, you know, I grew up during Watergate and, you know, I, I kind of bought it, bought into some of the mythology about what journalism could do in terms of defending democracy. And, you know, when, when people start talking about invading Iraq, I mean, you didn't, you didn't have to be in the CIA or anything to understand that it was a dumb idea that it, everybody who read up or followed the story knew that Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. It just seemed crazy that we were doing this. Um, And yet, you know, my first thought was, oh, the great American media, the people who, you know, (laughs) saved America during Watergate, they're going to call out how ridiculous this is. And, you know, the public will see and the Bush administration will be so embarrassed by the reporting about how stupid this war is that it won't happen. And of course, as you know, and I know, that's the exact opposite of what happened. Instead, the media was very compliant and, and uh, you know, didn't challenge the Bush administration. And 
it made me it made me think as a journalist just writing these straight news stories isn't doing it you know um things are going really off the rails and and i need to be able to say that and um i was kind of lucky i um it was the mid 2000s and uh my, my top editors at the daily news were getting these like signals from we were still owned by the Knight Ritter chain of newspapers, but they were saying, you know, there's this blogging thing going on and like, maybe you guys could figure out how to like start some blogs. We don't really know anything about it or whatever. But so anyway, somehow I got in conversations about that and um, started blogging and the Philadelphia Daily News was this small upstart paper. And we didn't have any, we didn't have a lot of the hangups that a New York Times or Washington Post would have. Like they didn't mind that I could do a blog and, and start to get more and more opinion-y and still do straight news stories. And like a bigger paper, but you know, one of those other papers would have freaked out at that, you know, but the Daily News, Philadelphia Daily News didn't mind. And, um, you know, I think opinion writing was something I was kind of meant to do. And, and, and the more I did it with my blog, that became my primary identity. Uh, and uh, which was good because when, when the Inquirer and the Daily News inevitably merged, you know, the Inquirer wouldn't have let me do both. But since I had established such a brand as an opinion writer, they let me do it. As it, it so, uh, and the only difference is, I mean, the the era of blogging, regrettably, in my opinion, is kind of over, you know, for, for the most part. So, uh, so the way I do it now is more as a sort of traditional newspaper columnist, although I think my focus is still pretty much online. And then, um, Right at the start of the pandemic, coincidentally, uh, uh, we decided to get into the newsletter things. So I do a weekly newsletter that comes out every Tuesday. Uh, so it's kind of like a Substack-y type thing, but it's not on Substack. It's CB Inquirer. And uh, you don't have to subscribe to the Inquirer, which you know has a paywall like everybody else these days, but you can get it in your inbox for free at inquirer.com backslash bunch if anybody wants to sign up. Okay. Well so. We'll put that in. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. Because uh, yeah, I I love newspaper columns, and I always have. I feel like sometimes the straight news stories, as as good as they are, um, you know, I remember being like in middle school and early in high school, just not knowing what to think about the 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 news stories that were coming at me, and I I learned a lot from reading the columnist, whether the, you know whatever side of the of the fence they were on. I I like to read everything. You know, I like to read George Will, even though I didn't agree with him a lot because he, you know, yeah. is on fact Krauthammer when he was around. Yeah, I like I liked reading Krauthammer. Yeah, he was interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's interesting you bring up the Iraq war. Like that period of time, I remember um thinking that because the attacks were so kind of out of they they pushed everybody out of their, you know, where they were in their space. The Democrats and the Republicans couldn't figure out which position they were supposed to have. <laughs> and it was a really interesting time to read the columns because you had a lot of left wing columnists agreeing with the right wing columnists and people in the it, it, it was sort of very fascinating. I also remember at that time being very frustrated that I didn't have some sort of platform to, to you know, shout about things. So um, I, you know, I get it. <laughs> I get that. The, the draw of that event, especially. It was, it was a, it was, it was, a, I, I feel it was a really a radicalizing experience. In fact, it surprises me in a way how much we've forgotten in 20 years, you know, that, that George W. Bush isn't a pariah, you know, and, and, uh, and it, it seems like, 
you know, and it's 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 fascinating, and and I, I don't want to go off because it's a long ta- tangent, but it kind of fascinates me how uh, Bush and Cheney were really bad in one kind of way, and then we've got Trump who's really bad in a different kind of way, and it's I, I, it's a great barroom debate. I think who was worse, right? Uh, you know, is is the Iraq War, which killed you know tens, hundreds of thousands of people. Is that worse than Trump's flouting of the Constitution? You know, um, I guess they're just different. You know, they're different. Yeah. You know, and, and they're related. So it's that's why it's a long conversation. But, yeah, yeah, no, it's hard to it's hard to uh, to put your nose that you you almost have to do it as a you know America starts to go downhill. You know, with that yeah. decision, specifically the Iraq War decision, because of the you know the investment of putting aside for a minute all the innocent people that died. Um, which was obviously important, but the uh, just the investment of time and resources and people and money and the tax cuts, you know, I think we're still we're still recovering from it, and uh, we may not recover from it ultimately. But like you said, long conversation. Uh, yeah. and I have I have two pages of things I want to ask you. So, um, okay. all right. So I think it's interesting because you work in journalism. Obviously, you've been a journalist for for many years, and you've written a book called After the Ivory Tower Falls which is about the higher education system. And I think this is interesting because you, you're you coming at it from an industry that has changed really, really radically in the last 50 years, writing about another industry that's changed really, really radically uh, in the last 50 years. So it's massive, massive changes. So what was the impetus to write that book? The impetus was, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I really came at that topic, and you're right, it is ultimately a book about higher education, but I came at it as a political topic and and really as a political writer. Um, and the reason why is because um, starting, I guess, around that period of the 2000s that we were just talking about, but an, another thing from that period was I really started seeing the college, non-college divide in politics uh, expand during those years. So uh, I always tell people the story, and it's true, I spent, uh, m- my kids were like in grade school and middle school, you know, they're 30-ish now, so it's a, it's a while ago, but, uh, and I was working split shifts to help take care of them and shovel them around. So, so I was spending a ridiculous amount of time in the car. And one of the things, because I was concerned with the direction the country was taking, I was trying to figure out the conservative movement, the right, and what better way than to listen to Rush Limbaugh and some of the other hosts. Yeah. And, you know, and and also, I mean, there was no liberal political talk you could really listen to in the car. Anyway, so they were talking about politics. I was totally disagreeing with them. But I, but I wanted to hear, I wanted to, like, maybe understand their point of view. And, and the thing that really came across that made me think was, the way, you know, who they were angry at, you know, that they were angry at journalists. I mean, that jumped out at me, but, you know, or, or college professors and and their anger at academia and their anger at people like Hollywood movie stars. And to me, if the heartland was suffering, you know, economically and, and you know, the, the whole thing about economic anxiety, right? I mean, if that was really the thing, then they would be mad at CEOs and, and people who were actually shipping jobs to China or shipping jobs to Mexico. But that's not who they were mad at. They were mad at you know, the PMC, the professional ma- managerial class, the people didn't call it that then. But And that fascinated me. And um, I, re- I remember probably after listening to Rush Limbaugh, I said, I, 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 said to, I said to my wife one afternoon, I said, 
you know what's really driving the country apart is it's college. It's like higher education. And she said, really? No, I don't think so. That's crazy. It's like, oh, all right. So I, so like like most good husbands, I put it in the back of my mind for, for a while that I guess this was a crazy idea I had. But then, you know, then we as we got towards the Trump years, you could really see how dramatic the, the uh, college, non-college divide was and people arguably voting against their self-interest, right? People, people in West Virginia uh, who desperately need health care and, and uh, or could benefit from a higher minimum wage voting for Republicans. But then also, you know, people in really wealthy suburbs voting for Democrats who say they're going to raise their taxes, right? It's like, how did, how did this happen? And, and, to, and to me, you know, and I, feel, I felt like people were in silos. You know, I started to read political writers saying, oh, yeah, the, you know, college is becoming the big indicator of how people are going to vote. And we're talking more and more. But like nobody really explained why that was. And there are, you know, and there are a lot of good books from academic type people about the problems in higher education. But nobody was like crossing over. You know, nobody was nobody was saying, what is it? about higher education, you know, if if there's a college divide, it's probably being caused by college to some degree. I mean, that's an overgeneralization, but, but you know, something about college in America is creating this college, non-college divide in our politics. So, you know, I put on my journalism hat and like, I want to find out how this is. I mean, I'm I'm a total history freak, so it was a great chance to kind of write a book within the book about the history of college since the GI Bill, which is really where you got to start because that's when college started really expanding. It's also where the idea that college was for everybody and just not for, you know, or anybody who could get in with merit and and not just for rich elites, you know, that's where, that's where that all started right at the end of World War II. And it was a chance to write about my favorite topic, the 60s. So I'm a, I'm a 60s history fanatic. So, uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I got to talk to a couple of the survivors of the Kent State shooting and uh, Mario Savio's widow and and uh, some really interesting people. So so I wanted I wanted to tell that story. So it's it's kind of a hybrid book. You know, some of the book is very explicitly, you know, what went wrong with higher education, basically the privatization, you know, college was nearly a public good in this country in the 50s and 60s, when tuition was just so low at state universities and a place like the University of California, you know, Berkeley was free or, or City City University of New York was also free, you know, to, to where we are now with insane tuition and 1.75 trillion in student debt. Um, so, so that's a big part of it. But I also looked at how that how that changed us politically, you know, and uh, you know the the resentments, you know, once you know once the American dream of college was closed off to a large portion of the population, how that helped build those resentments between the working the non college working class and and this PMC class that they didn't like but had to deal with, and and, and the end of the book really is kind of a plea, you know, kind of a plea to a try and swing the pendulum back towards making college a public good, you know, and maybe try some other things uh, that might bring us together. Like, for example, uh, you know, universal uh, civilian service, a gap year, um, you know, for 18-year-olds where people from different backgrounds, 
you know, get a chance to do environmental projects together or, or, or whatever. We talk so much about how, you know, our big problem right now is division and we're on the brink of some kind of civil war or whatever, which is true. It is, it is arguably our biggest problem, but people don't really talk about what we can do. You know, people don't talk like there's anything we can do about it, but I mean, the book tries to argue there are things we can try, you know, there are things we can like, that would be an example of something I think would be very beneficial, would have multiple benefits for, for the kids. It would be good for the country. Uh, and we need to start thinking about trying these things. You know, we spend, you know, more on our Pentagon than the next nine or 10 nations combined. So we could probably find, squeeze out a few dollars to do, to do a national service program. So that's, that's kind of the story of how I got into it. Yeah, no, that's, it's really interesting. And it's, um, it's on my brain right now. Cause I have literally my son's going to go off to school in like a couple of weeks now, which has been a sudden. So, um, you know, I'm getting the bills now to see about this. And it feels like also um, there's a it's just different than it was when I was going to college, you know, back in the ni- early 90s. It's just the, the attitude is different. I have always felt as a as a Gen X person born in I'm born in 1972 that during the Vietnam War, because you could uh, go to college instead of going off to war, that a yeah. lot of people did that not because they wanted to go to college, but because they wanted to not fight in the war and then entered the workforce with the college degrees. And because there were so many now extra college degrees, that became almost a standard of hiring, whereas before maybe it wasn't. And then my generation, we have to get it without we don't have any choice in the matter. And, you know, all of the the, the cost for it starts to get ramped up and up. Um, so it's interesting, but I feel like now the kids are I don't know about savvier, but they're they're certainly more economically minded and saying, I don't know if I want to necessarily be saddled with all this debt, stuff like that. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how it goes. But I agree. It is a public good. And, you know, the Republicans are constantly at war on education. They want to get rid of the Department of Education. They want to defund education. DeSantis sends that weird guy in to break up the new college in Florida. You know, there, there's all these things. If they're spending that much time and energy attacking education, then it's probably something that we should spend as much time and energy supporting. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, what I mean, what the book tries to get at, I mean, you know, specifically what happened in the 60s and early 70s. I mean, Reagan's political career was, I don't, I don't want to say exclusively, but was heavily the result of running against Berkeley, you know, running against these kids protesting on campus. And, you know, it was Reagan who said taxpayers should not be funding young people's intellectual curiosity. And that was that was kind of the mantra for, you know, this mood swing about what college is for, you know, that, you know, don't go there to study philosophy or sociology, go there to get a job, you know, um, uh, and that's the change. Yeah, it, it's it's funny, though, you say about how, how the vibe around college changed uh, from when you went there. So imagine if you went to college in the late seventies, like I did, you know, and I mean, yeah, it struck me. So my, and, and my kids, you know, also were a little bit ahead of your kid, but they, they went to college in the 20, in the 2010s. And, and that was another thing I think, honestly, that maybe influenced my thinking about doing the book and then writing the book was the same thing. What I saw just about what it, what a difference, different experience it is, you know, and, and I don't want to oversimplify, but like, for me, when I was 
going to college in the 70s and maybe partly because I went to a prep school. So pretty much everybody was going to college. Right. But it was kind of like a joyful thing. Like people were just excited about where yeah. they were going to go. And and, you know, we'd go out to, you know, we, we you know, get into bars when we were 17. And and instead of talking about girls, we would talk about like what college we were going to go to, you know, and, and it was like that. And today I feel there's so much dread and anxiety around college, you know, whether it's how am I going to pay for it or am I making the right choice or, you know, when people, you know, my, my son probably applied to like more than 20 schools, you know, and just, you know, the anxiety about getting in and then, you know, when he got into it, he actually got into most of them. He didn't think he would, but he, he did. But then it was like, well, where do you go? And it's, you know, and it was like, it was stressful. I mean, I think it, I think it kind of worked out sort of, but it's stressful, you know? So, you know, it's, it's just a big issue of our time that I don't want to say it's not talked about. And in fact, you know, with, with Biden and the whole student loan thing, the last couple of years, it's been talked about, you know, in the mainstream media, probably more than any time in the last 20 or 30 years, but we still don't talk about it enough. I mean, it's just, it's such a big driver. And, you know, I mean, I think for certain, certainly for upper middle class, but I think, I think for middle, middle class, most middle class families, it's like the defining thing of the middle of your life when you're raising kids. And, you know, it's like, how am I going to save money for college? Where are my kids going to go to college? I mean, it's, it's the, no, it's the biggest thing, you know, you know, maybe, Maybe there are ways our political system could help make that better for people. You know, we should we should be talking about that more. Yeah, it would be it would be nice. It would be nice. Yeah. Now, I want to I want to talk also about journalism, which, you know, obviously has changed dramatically. You you mentioned the the inevitable merging of the two papers, you know, Knight Ritter and all of these local newspapers that just have gone under or merged. And there's very little local reporting in a way that there used to be. Um, you know, the media in general seems to be on a downward trend where you have a couple of companies owning everything. Elon Musk has obviously ruined Twitter um, intentionally, in my opinion. But what I want to ask about is uh, the media, the mainstream media, by and large, failed us in 2016. And it seems to be failing us again, maybe not quite as badly, but it it's definitely it's not, you know, what's the thing? Not the odds, the stakes. It's not good at reporting the stakes yet. It's it slowly seems to be coming along. But why do you think that is? Why didn't the media learn a lesson from 2016, or did it? You know, I think so much of what the media does, you know, the the, the big mainstream media as institutions, um, you know, just comes out of this professional mindset that. Um, if you're not a journalist, it's like inscrutable, you know, it's like, it, it's not the way a normal, not the way a normal person thinks, because, you know, the normal person is a partisan, right, probably wants one party to win or the other party. And, you know, um, the, the kind of cult and worship of a certain type of ob objectivity. And, you know, it's, a, it's a loaded word. I mean, to me, what journalists should be striving for is, I wouldn't call it objectivity, but I mean, you want you if, if you're going to cover any subject, first of all, you want to learn everything there is to know. And you certainly want to be fair. You want to hear what every side, if it's a controversial thing, which it probably is, or you wouldn't be writing about it, then, then you want to hear what every side has to say. But, you know, I mean, 
I mean, to, I mean, to give the most obvious classic example, if it's an issue like climate change, I mean, sure, you can read what the Exxon funded, you know, <laughs> right wing think tank has to say about climate change. But you should also do enough reading to know that the people who are actually climatologists, the world's experts, are pretty much in agreement that surprisingly, it's not what the Exxon think tank says, you know, um, in, in your articles, you know. Your coverage should reflect that to, to some degree. But but um, I mean, getting to your question, I mean, you know, especially especially in politics, you know, the top newsroom editors just pride themselves on having a culture of, you know, fairness and and uh, not tilting towards one side or the other. And, you know, again, it, it doesn't it sounds it sounds fine, but the way it works in practice, you know, certainly, you know, with like Hillary Clinton's emails and now, you know, with some of the things around Biden, um, this notion of balance sometimes means trumping up minor things about one side to match the, the actually big and, and seriously threatening things about the other side. And, you know, I mean, the biggest problem, though, and, and I'm hardly the first to point it out, many people have said this, is we, we've watched this remarkable development over the last 30 years or so which is the Republican Party rejecting democracy. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Republican Party is an organization of, you know, is a group of people who are kind of united in their hatred and fear of liberalism, of, you know, of losing their uh, entrenched hierarchies, which I would say white, you know, white supremacy or white privilege and, and, and the patriarchy are, are the two big ones. Uh, I guess there are others too, but, um, you know, and again, Again, the, you know, the liberals and and the college educated people are kind of synonymous, right? So that's kind of how it ties into my book, I guess. But um, yeah. yeah, so um, the goal isn't to win these wonderful, you know, New Hampshire town hall fair and free elections. The goal is to hold power by any means necessary to prevent those people uh, from having their way. You know, it's it's been... I don't know if it's been, I don't know if a frog in boiling water is the right analogy or not, but, you know, it's happened slowly over time. It's like first, first there was voter suppression, you know, which I mean, uh, you know, there were, there were things like voter ID and, you know, and that's, you know, you can argue about voter ID. It's, you know, obviously it's trying to make it harder for people to vote and, but at least there are things you can argue about it. And, uh, you know, then there, then it's like closing polling places, then it's like, you know, striking down the vote, you know, and 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 all of a sudden one day you wake up and it's like election denial. It's like, you know, trying trying to reverse the results of elections, you know, and I mean, you know, I, I would say January 6th is the ultimate, but I guess it can get worse than January 6th. But I mean, that's where that kind of mindset heads. And, you know, we, and we've seen this with a number of things in 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 terms of the media, the, the media just hasn't adjusted, you know, um, my, my most read column this year was, I kind of went off after, mainly after watching the first Republican debate, which, which uh, work, work kind of made me watch it under duress. I kind of didn't even really (laughs) want to watch it, but we had to do this thing where we all the everybody on the opinion staff had to rate the candidates. So it's like, all right, I got to watch this thing. And, 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 you know, I mean, the media, is covering it like it's a 1996 debate, you know, yeah. and and it's not. I mean, uh, because 
it's it's not a party. It's a cult of personality, and they already and their personality has already been selected. It's it's Donald Trump, you know, and everything that the candidates said was, you know, in the shadow of Trump being the guy, and you know, you know, and and their refute. Un- unwillingness to really challenge Trump because we didn't even have to show up, you know? Um, right. And, and, and then the debate's over and you cut to the commentators and it's like, well, I think Nikki Haley won and like, you know, won what, you know, it's not, it's like, that's not important. What's important is this anti-democratic, uh, you know, call it authoritarian or call it fascist if you want, but you know, this, this movement is, you know, rising and, you know, it could overtake our democracy in a year or two. And and what are we, what does that mean? And what are we going to do about it? And, you know, and I think it certainly wasn't because of my column. I mean, other people, you know, Jay Rosen, you know, uh, uh, Dan Frumkin, Margaret Sullivan, uh, uh, Mark Jacob, you know, uh, people should be reading all of those yes. folks or following them on Twitter. Uh, you know, there's, there's kind of a community that's, been trying to light a fire under people you know the the main reporters and the mainstream media are seeing these things and and you're see you are seeing you know we're not quite there yet but i mean i think you've seen you've seen an improvement uh you and i were talking before the tape started rolling about you know this weekend the, the uh most read story in the washington post is an op-ed by robert kagan um who I've mixed feelings about, but going back to the Iraq war, but, but um, uh, an op-ed basically saying dictatorship is happening, you know, is there anything we can do about it? You know, and uh, you know, other, other outlets have been doing, you know, the New York times has been a little bit, you know, I mean, they can't help themselves with their ridiculous headlines, but the, uh, but the actual stories, a lot of times the kind, you know, and I, I mean, I, I, I certainly credit them, for example, for, breaking the story about some of the immigration stakes of a Trump presidency, which would be mass deportations, camps, you know, call them concentration camps or whatever. But I guess you can't have mass deportation without putting people on camps before they, uh, before they go. And, and just a climate of fear and, and, and terror in, in, in these heavily immigrant populated neighborhoods. And, um, so we're seeing a little bit more about the stakes of a Trump presidency. Um, I may be getting ahead on your list of questions, but I mean, I mean, the bigger question is even if the media does a great job and does everything right, are there enough voters who care? You know, that's that that becomes the next question after that. So that's that's a good question. And that's also that's a good point to take a break. Uh, so we'll be right back with Will Bunch. Welcome to the 5-8. This is what we do here. The 5-8, your Friday night hang. We take five of the week's most notable and newsworthy topics and spend eight minutes covering each one. Yeah, like everything else associated with Trump, it's a walking disaster. Prosecution is important because it's the only thing that starts to puncture their personality cults. I really do need people to remember, like, tell uh, Americans history. Tell the actual story that this country actually did that. What we need to be selling out there is that we are the antidote to chaos. That we are actually um, just for responsible, effective government. There is no greater um, issue 
that sums up democracy versus fascism than abortion. There is nothing more authoritarian than the state telling a woman that she must carry to term Forced a, birth. A, yeah. a pregnancy that she does not want. Five segments, three minutes of evolving animation by Chunk, two revved up hosts, one comic interlude. It's not the end of the world, just a Twitter. A special guest. Basically, what we are now is bailout nation in banks. Because nowadays, elections are not about facts. And as many cocktails as we deem necessary. So I'm calling this a Dinesh D'Souza. <laughs> when they go low, bury them. They're already down in the gutter. Join me, Greg Oliar, and LB, Stephanie Koff. Our rants to one another end up being this show. This is what we decided to do with our friendship. Friday nights, live, 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. It's the 5-8. I guess it's okay. People seem to like it. Okay, we're back with Will Bunch. Um, I think that's a great question and a great way of framing it is do enough people care? Um and just getting back to the media thing, it's it's very frustrating because I feel like individual journalists are clearly doing a good job, you know, especially yeah. the 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 rank and file who are doing the hard news stuff. Clearly, you know, everything that I know about stuff that's happened, I learned from reading in the newspapers. It's not like in 2017 I had sources or anything like that. So they're doing a good job reporting it, but the framing of it all is maybe not so great. Um, but from what I observed, I worked at AP years ago uh, in, in human resources, but I was there in the news meetings and stuff like that. And the culture of newsrooms in, that I saw was very conservative, not politically conservative, just conservative in a sense of slow to change. And, you know, the inertia of doing things the old way, uh, you know, so it's no surprise, I think, on some level that it would take time to drag the ship to a different direction or something like that. You know, the Titanic you got to steer yeah. it in a certain way or else it's it's going to you know not not work so um yeah, i think that's part of conservatism too. i think yeah i think i think there's a lot of suspicion of you know it, it's kind of i don't want to, i don't know if centrist is the right word but you know there's this there's a suspicion like you know social movements like occupy or, you know are just greeted with a lot of cynicism and suspicion where, where i thought it was like hey great some people are finally talking about what's going on, what's really going on in this country. And, you know, there's, there's a kind of a reaction of, oh, look at these, you know, it's like people who actually care enough to go out in the streets and protest about something are seen as like a little weird. It's like that kind of conservatism, you know? So, um, you know, as it relates to Trump, you know, I think people, you know, people who are on social media screaming about fascism or something that I think that makes certain kind of journalists squeamish, right? When people use, People use the F word fascism or, yeah. or, 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 or say this is just, you know, I mean, saying, I mean, I mean, for example, you know, saying this is just like the Nazis, right? It's like, oh my right. God, these people, have, these people have gone off the deep end. They're comparing, it's like, well, read some histories of, yeah. you know, Germany in the 1930s and you, you might be surprised or even shocked by some of the similarities between that time and and what's been happening the last few years, you know, and that doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean we have to go around painting a little mustache on Trump's face, but it, but it's good to know the history of how authoritarianism happens because, 
it seems to be happening now, right? So yeah, I mean, just as the you know you mentioned the climate, just like the climatologists are all up in arms and sounding the alarm bells. I mean, everybody that you know, the fascism scholars and the academics who study this stuff have been screaming about it for you know literally for years now, and have reached some sort of fever pitch. And uh, you know, when you have that whole group of people whose job it is to learn about this stuff and know about it, um, you know, sounding the alarm, it's stuff that you have to kind of pay attention to more so than me sounding the alarm, you know, yeah. what do I know, but you know, if, if Ruth Ben Giat sounding the alarm, that maybe we need to listen to her more. Right. And, and, we need, and we need to see her and, and, uh, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, was his name? Timothy Snyder and some of these other people, we need to see them on TV. We do see them occasionally, but we should probably be seeing them more, you know, because, yeah. you know, um, absolutely. So you mentioned, uh, the plans that would happen if Trump, um, follows in the footsteps of Grover Cleveland and becomes the second president elected <laughs> to non-consecutive terms. Um, it would be bad. It would be bad in so many ways, you know, starting off with anybody that, you know, is reasonably competent and not fascistic is not going to go there. He's not going to even tap into those people. I think when he, you know, the, the first time around, the people that he chose for the jobs, some of them were there because they thought he was crazy and they wanted to tamp him down and all this. Stuff. I don't think we're gonna get, we'd get anybody like that this time around. It would all be, you know, yes men and stuff like that. Uh, and they have these plans that are, you know, frankly terrifying. So you wrote a column about Mike Davis, who has a really bland, these guys all have bland names, you know, uh, Mike <laughs> Johnson, Mike Davis. Like, I think almost, it almost feels intentional. Like we're not supposed to know who they are. Who is yeah, that guy? I, I, mean, I mean, Mike Johnson was like, it's just like an AI generated, uh, yeah, totally, you know, totally. it's like, it's like, it's like you look into him and it's like, everything stops like three years ago. It's like, you know, who was this person, you know? And it's like, you couldn't come up with a better name for him than Mike Johnson. Yeah. But <laughs> it's true. No, I, guess, he does I, I, I guess, I guess he's real, but uh, yeah. Are we sure? Are we sure he's not AI? I, I don't know. The jury's still out. I think, I think, <laughs> is that why they got rid of Sam Altman? He, he, you know, he, he yeah, right. a secret, right? Was, <laughs> he knew the true story of, of uh, Mike Johnson. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. Mike, yeah, Mike Davis, I know uh, Alex Aronson, who's been on this show, who is the former general counsel for uh, Senator Whitehouse is, you know, tangles with him on Twitter often. So, um, Oh yeah. He, you know, he, uh, he was thrilled that I wrote about him, you know, yeah. his organization tweeted it out. It's like, you know, it's like, that's the game. It's like, see, they're scared of me, you know? And he's, you know, I mean, it, it's interesting though, because here's a guy, it's just a regular lawyer, went to, um, from Iowa, went to the, went to Iowa state universities, you know, good, for, good for him. And, all right, he's a conservative, you know, he comes to Washington, starts working with Grassley, Iowa senator, on uh, on confirmation stuff and just gets sucked into this, you know, vortex somehow. And, uh, you know, I mean, he he's like defending Kavanaugh and, and all this other stuff, which I guess I guess would be a radicalizing experience to some degree. But he comes out on the other side of this and just says, says stuff that's just bat guano crazy, you know, um, and, you know, about, uh, you, you know, yeah, we're going to put kids in camps and we're going to have gulags for the people in Washington and just like 
really over the top stuff. And I mean, I mean, he said some of that stuff on a podcast and we all know, we all know how people go crazy saying <laughs> stuff on, on podcasts. Right. So, but, but I, but what I think he's, but what he's really doing obviously is he's auditioning for Trump. I mean, he, I think he, I think he very much would like to be attorney general or, or something comparable to that, but I think especially attorney general and he's smart enough to know that the more out there he is on this stuff, uh, you know, and the more he gets liberals to hate him, the more he's going to be on Trump's radar screen, you know, and uh, and, and people he's got people like Steve Bannon talking him up. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think in your intro to this question, you hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, I mean, I mean, remember when Trump came in as president in 2017 and, and like, you know, Reince Priebus or however you say his name was the chief of staff, for example, you know, and, and nobody's even thought about him for the last five years, but, you know, and, and, and Kelly and, and Mattis and all of those people, um, you know, because, because he didn't know what he was doing. He had to bring somebody in and, and uh, he had a bunch of people who, you know, they were kind of, on one hand, they were willing to work for Trump, which, makes them a little bit questionable, but they did have credentials and were semi-serious, you know, or serious, or some, you know, some of them were serious people like Mattis. And the, the the takeaway that Trump and and his inner circle got from January 6th and, and trying to overturn the election was we can't have any of these people, you know, we can't have, we can't have a bill bar at the at justice saying, you know, hey, I'm sorry, but you know, there's just no election fraud. It's like, you know, we, you know, we need a a Mike Davis or um, what's his name, the guy who got indicted, Jeffrey um, Clark, somebody yeah, like that, Jeffrey Clark, yeah, yeah. Eastman, um, John Eastman, one of those people. Yeah, 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 we need we need somebody, somebody like that. You know, I mean, one, it, I guess it's sort of a conspiracy theory, and and you can never prove it, but um, uh, I'm not. I'm not anti every conspiracy theory that's out there, but the, you know, the, the idea that this Tommy uh, Tuberville thing about holding up all these military appointments and and blaming it on, on abortion, you know, and and I guess he's anti-abortion or whatever, but um, it just seems like an effort to have as many vacancies to be filled by Trump as possible. Because when you look back at January 6th, that's what really stopped him was the military. You know, I mean, Millie, Mark Milley, I think, was more important than anybody, and you know, and I think, I think there's still kind of a semi-secret history of January sixth, kind of waiting to be told about what Trump and some of his people thought might happen with the National Guard or with Army troops or or whatever, and um, whatever they thought could happen with on that front didn't happen because of. Um, because Millie was in there and and some of the other folks so so the goal is to not have those people you know i mean yeah. you know i mean if 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 a if a trumpist maga general is running is running the joint chiefs or or you know um you know we'll, we'll see we'll see stuff like the insurrection act used against uh left leaning protesters you know uh because that that probably would have happened in 2020 if Millie, you know, he he might have called out troops uh, uh, for Black Lives Matter and then and the George Floyd protests were that not that institution there. So so they're you know, and what's alarming is they're actively working to make sure 
this doesn't happen. You know, you've got groups, you know, the Heritage Foundation and these other groups are working on these projects to create an agenda for Trump on how to undo liberalism and undo the, quote, administrative state or the deep state or whatever they're calling it this week to get not even a few, but to get thousands of MAGA loyalists in not just the top levels of these federal agencies, but, you know, the middle managers, you know, get who many of whom right now are civil servants. So, you know, Trump would look to implement an order that would uh, take away as, as many civil service protections as, as he possibly could and get as many of his many thousands of his hardcore, law, you know, John Eastman types into federal service as he can. And that's, you know, that's when people you so said when people say Trump is going to be a dictator, that's that's the nuts and bolts of how it's going to work. You know, having those people, it's like he he learned in his first term that, you know, being a dictator isn't just expressing your whim because he would express his whims. And a lot of times they didn't happen. Right. Because somebody knew how to walk it back and 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 whatever. So so the goal for Trump 47, as we call our non-consecutive presidents, right, be Trump 45. And like Grover Cleveland is what, the uh, 18 and 20 or something. I forget oh, which God, yeah. which numbers he is. But yeah, yeah. So so Trump 47 is I call him to distinguish him from the from the first term, won't won't have those constraints. You know, he'll be able to say something crazy in a in a cabinet meeting and We'll have a crazy cabinet meter, a cabinet member uh, who'll go out and get it done. So that's that's how this dictatorship idea is going to work. Yeah, we're 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 almost reaching the Caligula putting his horse in the Senate phase of things. Um, mm-hmm. But this is a good segue to um, you know the column you wrote about the Red, Red Caesar and this new right movement. I by the time this podcast comes out, I will have released part two of my deep dive into this which is a uh, so i've spent a lot of time uh reading all this stuff for the last couple weekends and it's sort of terrifying uh you mentioned purging the 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 civil service this comes from a an acronym and an idea by this guy curtis yarvin who's a uh, one of the thought leaders of the new right and <laughs> his acronym is rage which stands for retire all government employees um and as best as i can tell that you know that's the impetus for this whole thing there's a lot of writing in that group of people um you know who are clearly pro monarchy and pro let's install somebody and let's you know like you said with bannon tear everything down so you wrote a great column about this uh the red caesar and the, the idea of establishing uh an american dictatorship or monarchy or whatever you want to call it so how how did you first come to find out about that what was your introduction to it like how long have you known about it yeah you know i like like a lot of things I, I i i certainly wasn't the first to get into this i was kind of kind of an am- amplifier i i guess i was <laughs> i guess i was the first person in a u.s based mainstream media position to write about it but um some people have been po- poking around with this one guy i would definitely credit is a guy named damon linker who um is a writer who uh also t- he's here in philadelphia he teaches teaches at penn uh uh, he has a, he has an interesting. He's one of these former conservatives now, kind of maybe not liberal, but not a conservative anymore typewriter. And and he he's been following these uh, articles out of people from 
you know, some of the some of the usual suspects, right? The Claremont Institute mm -hmm. and uh, Hillsdale College, uh, uh, um, you know, two two kind of prominent, probably the farthest right think tanky type organ or, or collegiate type organizations that we have, um, you know, in some of these writings. Um, uh, Damon's work was picked up by and, and uh, I'm blanking out on the guy's name, but a guy who who covers right wing movements for the Guardian newspaper which is like brian it's like brian wilson something like that it is well his last name is definitely wilson i'm trying to i, I don't know if it's brian wilson because i probably would have remembered that but uh oh, wait is he the beach boy i can't yeah remember. he's the beach okay. brian wilson is the beach but that's why that's yeah, why i don't think it's that. brian but it's somebody wilson yeah, yeah so i came in after those guys but um because to me it's like it, it was a it was a jolt to learn about these thought leaders, as we sort of call them on, on the right, actively proposing unconstitutional, anti-democratic forms of government. Because, I mean, to me, I'm thinking, well, Trump is a problem because he gets on stage at these rallies and he and he says these things and he's getting more extreme. And honestly, it hadn't occurred to me that there was a pseudo-intellectual underpinning, you know, to all this, that... Although I get, you know, I mean, that's a whole different world that like a lot of us who aren't in that world don't follow. Like it wasn't until much later that I heard about the famous uh, Flight 93 essay in 2016. That's Michael An Michael Anton, right? Yeah, so, Michael yeah. Anton, uh, who also is tied to the Red Caesar movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's one of these things you have to put yourself in, a, in an alien mindset, right? I mean, you, you have to you have to see the world the way that these conservatives see them, that to them, democracy is being destroyed by college professors and, and um, uh, well, bureaucrats, you know, who I guess were educated in college, right? And, and you know, cultural, you know, I, I guess they, they call it cultural Marxism, right? Or whatever, or, or leftist ideas, you know, whether it's uh, things related to, identity politics or DEI or just too much government regulation or too much government in people's lives. I mean, that was, you know, the Michael Anton flight 93 essay was basically we have to crash the plane to stop these people. And Trump is how we crash the plane. And now eight years later, uh, it's like, well, maybe we don't have to crash the plane. Instead we have somebody you know, that somebody is obviously Trump because nobody else has stepped forward to claim uh, this crown of thorns or whatever it is that Caesar Caesar wears on his head, crown of, uh, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> we can have somebody who's who's like a Caesar, you know, who because of this crisis in their minds of runaway, you know, liberal domination of America that can't be undone any other way, that we're going to have this guy who's who's willing to break the rules, you know, who's willing to get rid of all these bureaucrats, which is that plan we were just talking about for firing bureaucrats and who's willing to kind of rule by fiat, at least in, at least in some ways to undo all this stuff or, or, or in their mind again, we're doomed, right? That's, that's the mindset. So, that, you know, so uh, they're trying to create this intellectual or pseudo intellectual underpinning for, for this red Caesar, you know, which is, basically a Caesar type person, the red is just Republican, I guess, who's going to come in and, and sweep away all their problems. And, you know, I mean, the thing about it is, so this is the, 
Claremont, Hillsdale, these handful of extreme right scholars saying this, but, you know, it jives with a mentality among everyday people out in the electorate, right? You know, that the, the way this plays, that the way this works in, a, in an election and the way that somebody who, who wants to be a Red Caesar can get democratically elected president is if enough people think that we need a strong man, you know, if there's enough people out there. And, and for me, and, and I've written a couple columns about this, when, when you look at just some of the chaos that's going on, you know, I mean, the world in this country in particular has just gotten, you know, nobody could disagree. I think things, things have gotten very chaotic and like, you know, Capitol Hill is kind of where the rubber hits the road, you know, Kevin McCarthy's speakership and the 15 votes and then to have him ousted after eight months and and this guy, Mike Johnson, who nobody knows who he is, comes in. All of this stuff is unprecedented, you know, all of this stuff. And meanwhile, they don't actually do anything constructive, you know, in terms of they can't pass a budget or, or do anything else. And people see that chaos. And I mean, you would think, think they would blame the Republican Party. I mean, you and I do, but, and a lot of people we know do, but there's a lot of voters out there who, you know, I'm always reluctant to use the term low information voter because it's kind of uh, a pejorative, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of looking down on people. And there's busy voters too, right? There's so many people in this country who have to like work two jobs to to make ends meet. So, you know, they're you know they're they're not reading Michael Anton's essays and they're but they're you know they're not what but they're also not watching you know MSNBC or they're not watching Rachel Maddow every Monday night they're they're busy they've they've got other things going on or whatever that they're not they're not plugged in they just know that things in this country are chaotic and they want it not like that you know they want you know they want to be confident you know they want a leader they can feel confident I think Biden's age ageism problems you know it's it's because his particular version of getting older in which he sometimes stumbles verbally or occasionally stumbles physically or whatever. That's the, that's the thing that people like, I don't feel confident in this guy, you know, like why, why they feel more confident in Trump kind of baffles me, but, but there are definitely people who feel that way. And so, uh, yeah, they want a strong man. It's like, there've been polling questions. Do you think America needs a, le- a leader who's willing to, bend the rules to get things done. And I forget, I forget the number. It's not a majority, but it's enough to be alarmed about that that many people, uh, you know, are kind of willing to, you know, chuck a few constitutional protections away because they want somebody who will fix things, you know, and, and, and Trump is always where this comes from. I wonder sometimes, but I mean, Trump has always had a sense of this, right? I mean, his 2016 acceptance speech in Cleveland, uh, when he said, I, I alone can fix this. I mean, I mean, to me, that's always been the core premise, right? He, you know, he, he's appealing to people who want that, who want a guy who, He's just going to step in there and fix things. And people have made such a mess of it, you know, whether, you know, they don't know who to blame, but they just want somebody to come in and and sweep it away. And I mean, the consequences, if this happens, are going to be disastrous. You know, I keep I keep thinking about the book that a um, sociologist and I can't remember his name, but uh, a sociologist uh, spent a couple of years right after World War Two traveling Germany, basically to talk to people, you know, basically just 
hey, what were you thinking, you know, with this with this whole Hitler Nazi thing? And 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 the book he ended up writing uh is called We Thought We Were Free, you know, is the title of the book that, you know, people didn't think it was going to turn out the way it turned out. And I mean, to see it potentially, you know, obviously we can we can stop this, but to see it even potentially happening happening again is heartbreaking. You know, it really is. Yeah, it is. It is well put. I, I, one thing I want to say, you mentioned the uh, Michael Anton and crashing the plane. Curtis Yarvin wants to blow up what he calls the cathedral, which is the, you know, the journalists and the college professors. That's his term for it. The cathedral. I, I haven't heard uh, that, but that's, it's a good term. Yeah. It's very poetical. Yeah. He wants to destroy the cathedral. Steve Bannon wants to destroy the administrative state and they're, their founding thought leader wrote this. I want to read you this paragraph. Uh, it will be objected that the French and Russian revolutions were failures, but most revolutions have two goals. One is to destroy an old form of society, and the other is to set up the new form of society envisioned by the revolutionaries. The French and Russian revolutionaries failed, fortunately, to create the new kind of society of which they dreamed, but they were quite successful in destroying the old society. We have no illusions about the feasibility of creating a new ideal form of society. Our goal is only to destroy the existing form of society. You know who wrote that? Uh, not Michael Anton. Or... The Unabomber. Ah. <laughs> That's one of their seminal texts, the Unabomber Manifesto, uh, which, which, you know, just goes to show how how batch what did you say bat guano all of this is bat guano crazy yeah <laughs> that's my that's my that's my term as a, as a journalist you have to come up with ways to kind of swear swear but not swear so that's 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 become kind of my favorite so yeah I like it it's a it, it's a good one okay so I have one more question for you because I don't want to keep you too long um and we we've, we've tackled a lot of things uh this might be the most important question of the day. Eagles are playing the 49ers tomorrow. It's a big NFC matchup. Who do you got? Well, you know, I've, I've watched the Eagles four weeks in a row, I think it is, pull out games that they shouldn't have won. And, you know, they're just a team. You know, you, you look at the team, you break it down individually. I mean, you know, I mean, Jalen Hurts is certainly having a good year. He could be the MVP, but he's, you know, he's not putting up these like monster numbers or or doing anything crazy. And and you know, um, you know, and obviously they've they've got good players. You know, AJ Brown and Devonte Smith and and uh, and their defense has been outstanding. But basically, they just seem to be a collection of people who know how to win games. You know, when when the crunch. When the crunch time comes, they always figure out a way to win. You know, they've been a, they've been like a couple of games where they've had zero or almost zero sacks of the quarterback in the first three quarters, and then on the last couple drives when they really need it, they get sacks. You know, I mean that's that's the kind of team they've been. And you know, the 49ers are, are a great team, but I think I think it's going to be like all the other games. I think the Eagles win it by three or four points. You know. 31 27 something like that you know uh we'll see i mean i mean the flip side is you could argue you can certainly argue that they're due for they're going to lose one of these games eventually but you know they've got this game they've got dallas i mean 
just an incredible stretch of games, you know, Kansas city and Dallas twice and, and Buffalo is certainly a good team. And, and uh, um, Miami, I think was in there, you know, and they've won them all. And then somehow they managed to lose to the jets, which I know I was going to say, I kind of want them to go 16 and one just because Zach Wilson beating them is the funniest thing ever. I think that was, that was just crazy, (laughs) but you know, it was, it was kind of good. I mean, first of all, it's like, it's a loss that really hurts them the least, you know, it's not against a conference team or, you know, it's not that. And it's almost like, cause, cause I've seen, I've seen these teams, you know, only a couple of them, but when these teams like the Patriots, you know, 10 years ago, when they're, when they're trying to go undefeated and it just adds this like extra layer of pressure yeah. to, to be undefeated, you know, and it's like, it's almost better to have that pressure off by losing a game. You know, it's not, it's, it's almost like two, per, it's almost like, I mean, obviously they didn't lose on perfect, perfect, but it's like, well, we'll lose a game and we'll lose the most meaningless, you know, ridiculous one <laughs> possible because that was, you know, I mean, what could be more ridiculous than losing to the jets, you know, with that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, on one hand, you know, having been a sports fan for 50 years now, you know, I've seen a lot of teams of destiny and, and they certain these eels certainly have that team of destiny vibe about them but on the other hand the the countervailing force is it's philadelphia you know i mean <laughs> i actually i mean i'm a big eagles fan but probably if i you know if you forced me to rate the teams you know i'm i'm, I'm a soccer fanatic so I, I you know i basically live to watch every philadelphia union game um uh match and um and i'm a, just been a diehard Baseball has always been my kind of number one sport. So I'm a huge, huge Phillies fan. And uh, last last year, like around this time of year, I guess it was in early November, actually, the Union and the Phillies became the first two teams from the same city to lose their championship round on the same day. I mean, it was November 5th to 2022, like the... Uh, the union lost the MLS cup when they were 90 seconds away from winning and the Phillies lost game six of the world series, a world series. They had been leading two to one. So that's, that's the Phil, that's the Philadelphia sports zeitgeist. And so and the Eagles lost the Super Bowl. So and the, Eagles, and the Eagles then lost the Super Bowl in a, hor- in a kind of a horrible way too. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, you know, I, you know, history keeps repeating, but I always think, you know, that the the analogy I always use in my mind, I always think of one of my favorite movies, Groundhog Day, that like eventually, eventually some morning's gonna come and Sonny and Cher are gonna be off two seconds from all the other mornings, you know, and and you and you realize it's gonna be a different outcome. And 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 uh we've had a couple, you know, I'm out, you know, I obviously the Eagles did win the Super Bowl in 2018. So it hasn't been and the Phillies won the World Series and 2008 so it hasn't been a total total drought but the force of nature is against us but we'll see <laughs> because it seems like feels like a team of destiny so it does feel like a team of destiny i think that um you know valdis scantling will catch the damn ball in the Super Bowl, but we'll see we'll see um yeah, so- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i hear you where can we find you you're on twitter you're online a lot you're on twitter is on it twitter just a lot x or whatever we're calling it these days i i, I haven't been persuaded to leave yet and for better or worse because yeah you can't it's hard to it's hard to start over on a new site with to go from you know a lot of followers to zero but um yeah so uh, it's at at will underscore punch 
pretty easy to find. So, so I mean, I'm mostly there. And then my writing for the Inquirer, which, like I said, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Again, it's inquirer.com backslash bunch, or you can just read all my columns on my author page at the at the Philadelphia Inquirer, inquirer.com. We are, we are paywalled. It's not total, total. So if, if you're from out of town, you can probably read a few stories or read a few columns before you might hit the paywall. But uh, so, or you can subscribe to the Philadelphia Inquirer. There are yeah. a few people, there are a few people who told me they're not from Philadelphia, but they subscribe to read my columns, but uh, there's not a lot of them, but uh, I'm, I'm just flattered. There's even one person who would do that. But so, yeah, I'm out there. I write, you know, most columnists only write twice a week, but I write three times a week, two columns and the newsletter. So I, I write a lot. So, and I'm, am I and in between? I constantly, you know, blithering on Twitter. So, so uh, I definitely can be found. Okay. Um, this was great. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to hang out with me today. Learned a lot. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a great, great conversation. Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossett. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to the 58 the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday Night Hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time... We shall prevail. MSW Media. Hi, I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.